Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Anna Murad. I am the past infant medical director for TIPQC and delighted to be with you all today. We have as our guest, Dr. Stephen Patrick, who is a neonatologist at Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, and super excited to talk to him today. Stephen, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your work? I do work at the at Vanderbilt, mainly focused on the opioid crisis, and I think what we're going to talk about today was a role that I had over the last year at the White House working on the administration's first-year drug policy priority, focused on improving access to treatment for pregnant women with substance use disorder more broadly, and in reducing unnecessary foster care placement. That's wonderful. Yeah, so you were the senior policy advisor in in the White House Office for National Drug Control Policy, um, and that definitely is is what we're going to be talking about today. We want to dive a little bit deeper into the report on substance use disorder and pregnancy improving outcomes for families. And the report came out fairly recently, and just wanted to hear a little bit more about the report. Tell us a little bit how it got started, the background, how it was developed, if you can delve into it just a little more. Yeah, the administration developed a, a series of priorities early on that they wanted to work for uh, to establish policy. And this was sort of a, a very kind of fairly brief document early on in the administration, about five pages that had various policy priorities. And, and there was one that was focused on maternal child health. The uh, bigger picture for this is that the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy has been around for a, a long while now. It sets uh, drug policy for the, for the U.S., has some budgetary oversight. It has a history, really, of being more about a criminal justice approach to substance use in the U.S. But over the last couple administrations, it's really changed to be more public health focused. And the one of the big goals that the that the office does is it releases the annual na- national drug control strategy. So I was asked about a year and a half ago to split my time. So I spent about half my time working over the last year within the administration to lead an interagency effort focused on this uh, one of the items for the first year drug policy priorities uh, to improve outcomes for pregnant women with substance use disorder and their and their infants. Wonderful. I note that one of the priorities that seemed to take a bulk of the um, document was identifying and exploring uh, barriers. So what are some of the barriers that you know about, that you've seen, that you have actually done research on? Um, Would you like to go into that a little bit? Sure. We know that just being pregnant itself appears to be a barrier in accessing treatment. You're right. Our research team has done some work in this area where we had secret shoppers trying to access treatment that were identical, except for the fact that they were pregnant. And pregnancy itself was a barrier to getting into treatment. But certainly we all hear this from our patients too, and Firefly, where we work together and beyond, where it's just really hard to find treatment, particularly comprehensive treatments that includes well-woman care as well as addiction treatments. 
much less tailored services. So it's really challenging. We know from the literature, from our work too, there are substantial issues of equity, multiple studies showing that in particular, uh, non-Hispanic Black women and uh, American Indian Alaska Native women are less likely to receive medications for opioid use disorder than uh, than uh, non-Hispanic white women. And we see similar kind of issues that carry through in the child welfare system, too, where we see over-representation of non-Hispanic Black babies and uh, American and Alaska Native babies. And so, you know, that's really kind of the part of this. And I think the two are really tied together. I mean, the goal is if we're able to get uh, people into treatment, we think that we can we can reduce the need for foster placements. And one of the things of where we find ourselves now is that infants are the fastest growing group in foster care today. They account for 20% of annual foster placements, but they're only about 5% of the population of children in the U.S. And most of those infants end up in foster care because of parental substance use. So if we really want to solve this problem, uh, my sort of take on it is we can't solve it with more foster placements. We have to foster it on primary prevention and, and kind of working upstream from a real public health standpoint. Right. I think, and we'll get to the primary prevention and harm reduction in just a minute, but will you explain just briefly what Firefly, you mentioned Firefly Clinic, if you want to delve into that a little bit more, just explain what that clinic is. Sure. The Firefly is kind of the the product of a lot of collaboration and fortunate to get some funding from the federal government too. It's a comprehensive treatment program for pregnant women with opioid use disorder and their infants. It's funded federally from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation as part of the MOM model. This is called the Maternal Opioid Misuse Model. We branded ours Firefly in part because it just sounds better. It's also the um, the state insect of Tennessee, and it helped us sort of think more positively about a patient's recovery journeys. So the program itself is really focused on patient-centered care. So we have peer recovery specialists that are people with lived experience and recovery themselves that are, that are trained, that are really the glue for the program. They help walk families through, help walk moms through everything from when they first get there to kind of you know, making the phone call into our clinic to one year postpartum. And along that way, supporting them, connecting them to resources, um, not just healthcare, but also other things as we work to address a lot of the challenges that our families face, like food insecurity and transportation insecurity. And we also provide evidence-based addiction treatment, uh, including medications for opioid use disorder. We have psychiatric services. And, and then the part where we work together is on the pediatric side, where we are you know, continuing all the work that we've done to, to, to improve care delivery inpatient. And, you know, a lot of the work I know we've been thinking about together is how to, how to extend that a little bit to outpatient settings too. So Firefly is a work in progress. You know, it's supposed to be a bit of an experiment in improving care delivery. And that's what we're working to do. And I'll just say this, that a lot of these are, these programs are challenging, right? Because we're crossing sectors, we're crossing, you know, even people's disciplines. We're working with people with lived experience, but the things that I'm, you know, bolstered by and this work particularly are the stories of patients and you know, the difference that we see in some of our clinical outcomes as we're starting to get data. But our patients tell us as, you know, they're, they're really looking for treatment and having a hard time finding it. And they find that they find that here. And so I think for, for us, and our staff, that's really what keeps us going. And that's one of the models that was called out in this report was the mom model. But there were several states and state programs that were highlighted in the report where people are doing really novel work to try to address this issue. I think one of the other big things in the report was pointing out that 
substance use disorder in pregnancy is not by itself child abuse or neglect. So it's an important point to make and tell us a little bit more about how that came into the report and why it was important to say. Yeah, I'll step back a little bit. So as we started this work, we formed a, a new interagency group that included people from the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, the VA, and then all across the Department of Health and Human Services from various parts of CDC to the Children's Bureau and, and ACF to Medicaid, CMS. So it's a pretty comprehensive group of folks. And, and kind of leading that process, we, we set out some kind of how do we as a group want to talk about both framing the issue, how do we lead with lived experience, and how do we infuse where there's already expertise? So we held a series of, of listening sessions with people with lived experience, with public health stakeholders, with medical organizations to understand what people are already doing and to really hear from people what are the issues that they're facing. And so that helped inform the way we framed and wrote this up and our action statements. And so while we were working through this, what became clear is we didn't have unlimited resources when we when we were working on this. So, for example, we had to do things we, that were sort of already budgeted. We only could do things that were sort of immediately actionable, that didn't require congressional action, things like that. But we could we could frame the issue very carefully and we could talk about things in terms of value statements. And the one in particular that you brought up is really important because, you know, this is the first ever report from the White House on substance use disorder and pregnancy. There's a lot of states currently that have an increasingly so punitive policies towards substance use and pregnancy. And we know that it doesn't work. Arresting pregnant women doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't actually improve outcomes. It actually just drives people away from care. And so that statement coming from the federal government that went through like you know, fighting pretty hard in that process to get that through clearance with lots of lawyers and other folks seeing it. It's an important statement from the federal government as we think about how do we want to tackle this this problem from a public health and not a criminal justice standpoint. And reframing it so it's not as stigmatizing, right, that you reframe it. So a lot of concrete ideas about improving access are included in this report. So how do we make it easier for more providers to care for pregnant people with substance use disorder? What are some things that we really need to be doing? Well, so part of it is understanding what your local needs are. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we started talking about Firefly. Well, Firefly, uh, we would all acknowledge, is existing in this microcosm where we have resources to make it happen. Even early in the work that we did together, one of the things that really got us jump-started was having just a little bit of resources for somebody to help coordinate our activities really went a long way. So I think just small steps and doing what you can do in your local community really matters. Because I think that at the, at the end of the day, what's really needed here is, a, is an infusion nationally of both cash and infrastructure that mainstreams addiction treatment that brings people in into systems but while we're sort of like working towards that, we can't certainly wait for that. That's kind of the big picture thing that I think is needed. And so I think this is where uh, women's health providers from, from family medicine to obstetricians to FQHCs, you know, need to be wavered as long as like even by the time this podcast comes out, the waiver requirement may not actually be there anymore. There's some laws and there's some bills in Congress that may get rid of it. But being part of that and then working to partnerships, too. So, you know, if you have uh, local colleagues that are not comfortable, obstetricians that in particular that are not comfortable being waivered or prescribing buprenorphine, developing relationships and referral patterns to where that to where you can send folks, I think is really, really important. 
So I think this is both. It's part of its local action and kind of working to make a difference. And the other piece is just as we as we sort of push towards broader state and federal change on this, making sure that we're talking about the special needs of pregnant women and infants, because they're often, as we all know, right, they're often left out of that conversation. Right. I think those are very good points. This report talks a lot about strengthening community partnerships, and we know that our child welfare system is stretched. And here in Tennessee, we could argue that it's broken. What are some methods to build that infrastructure and how what are the linkages and community relationships that we need to be making? Yeah, the a couple of things that we aim to do. So if you read the report intentionally, the way it's written is it leads off with lived experience. It frames the issue. It has value statements and then it breaks off into things that we can do. And there are immediate actions that that will happen. There are commitments from the agencies focused on improvements to treatments, preventing unnecessary foster placements, data innovation, and then public-private partnerships. And I think part of this is like, even if we had all the money in the world, we're, we're not going to fix it without partnering. And at least for me, one of the things that is consistent both in our experience here locally, but I see this in systems everywhere, where we have silos of people that are trying to do good work, but they just don't talk to each other. So one of the things we're trying to work to improve is that. So we uh, specifically work to link perinatal collaboratives like TIPQC with technical assistance from, from child welfare, technical assistance centers, the National uh, Center for Substance Abuse and Child Welfare. That is, they, they do technical assistance to state child welfare agencies. But these two groups of folks are both trying to do good work, oftentimes don't work together. So that's at the end of the report, you can see a couple of things like partnering with NICHQ, a little bit of work and partnering with the Vermont Oxford Network, with the National Center to create modules. Those things are, are commitments where we work to, uh, to secure, to, to push those things forward, to hopefully create some linkages. And so I think that's one step. I think now kind of stepping out, like, of course, I speak on behalf of myself, particularly now, not on behalf of anyone else, uh, including the federal government. But one of the goals that I had had was greater clarity to states around what a plan of safe care is, because I think so we there's a lot of confusion about what a plan of safe care is. If we step back and look at reports, even from the federal government, the Government Accountability Office in 2018 published a report saying that many states are kind of confused about what a plan of safe care is, and that many states need more guidance. And, you know, the first item that is listed under uh, under reducing unnecessary foster placements is an information mem- informational memorandum to states that is currently being drafted to talk about shared responsibility across systems for uh, for families. You know, I think that's a first step in that direction. So what it says is that, you know, the problem of substance use isn't just a child welfare problem. It is a broader public health problem. And how can we think about approaching this, not just with an overstretched child welfare system, but to sort of right-size the intervention? Why don't we have Title V involved or early Head Start or a state housing authority to do the work of prevention and connecting to services so that we don't end up in our NICUs where we are, or our you know, newborn nurseries where we are trying to address a problem with a foster placement that we may have been able to avoid had we acted months before. And so that's really part of this. It's trying to build those relationships locally, trying to provide the resources to sort of push this down to make it easier for people to carry out. But as you pointed out, at every level from federal to state to local, the child welfare system is stretched. And I would say broken, and that brokenness is not unique to Tennessee. 
It's in many, many states, including my home state of West Virginia. That's a good point. And I think it's really important to know what your resources are in your local area. So building those, it doesn't have to be this big, massive. It can start local. It can start small, but knowing what you've got. Um, I think going back to barriers, the attention to the issue of child care assistance consistently is a major barrier in our patient population. What are some of the ideas that were thrown out as you were developing this report? Yeah, there's a couple of them. And, and you know, one thing that came out actually as part of this federal work that uh, that we didn't know, and this is where the sort of combination of experiences happens when we're trying to do things like Firefly, and then you have these really interesting connections to federal programs. So there are child care vouchers that states have. They're funded federally. And in the state of Tennessee, there, there, are, there are work requirements to get those. A couple of years ago, the agency that manages those, that Office of Child Care and ACF, released guidance that for people in recovery, you can you can basically work around those work requirements. But states don't know about that. Uh, many states don't know about that. And so that's part of one of the ideas, right? Can we not just use the resources that we have to support child care? And I think, you know, we would sort of, I think what we've seen in in, in Firefly you know, we talk about all the all the fanciness we do in you know the medical care we provide, or we talk about retention in so many ways, or childcare may be one of the most cost effective ways to keep people engaged in treatment. And it's just so hard. I mean, we it's the hardest thing that we've tried to crack locally. And I think this experience for me and sort of leading the work for this report and beyond has just further for me, highlighted how fractured the systems are between health and human services. And by that, I mean health, like all the things that we're doing. So broadly, including the federal government, you know, health is like Medicaid and Medicare. Human services are things like child care and early head start. Even federally, those things are, are disconnected. At the state level, they're disconnected. They're in different agencies. And we know for kids, we know for pregnant women, the combination of those things are hugely important and arguably the human services elements of what we do for our patients is more important than the medical care we deliver as we're trying to, to improve things. And so a bit of a long-winded answer to say that I think yeah. that I think that's like for me, the bigger kind of so what? It's the siloing of these systems between health, human services, and it's the siloing of addiction care outside of medical care that are huge challenges of our time. And I don't think we're going to see a real substantial improvement in outcomes for families until we begin to create systems that, that kind of break down those, those silos. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you are trying to do intensive therapy with a two-year-old, hard to do, right? You've got to have childcare. It's hard for, I mean, like thinking back, right? We both have kids, like trying to do anything with a two-year-old is right? challenging. Exactly. Like being like being somebody, I mean, I just think about this, like, being someone who has a substance use disorder, which we know like disproportionately folks live in poverty, they have histories of trauma. You get the courage to reach out to get into treatment. Let's say that you get through, you're in recovery, then you have a baby. And for all of us who've had babies, even pediatricians, right? It's kind of like, wow, that really, that first baby in particular really mm -hmm. kind of rocks your world and the stresses of that. And so we, we just don't make it easy for anybody. We take those sort of normal stressors and, uh, and we just make it harder. Right. I think it's and I think going back to the concepts of prevention first and harm reduction, those are terms that have more recently come into conversation around this. Can you talk a little bit more about those things and what is harm reduction? What does that look like? 
It can look like many, many things. And I would say that for ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, their first focus on harm reduction ever has just happened in the last year and a half with special funding for harm reduction. So harm reduction can look in a lot of different ways. And it's it, it honestly gets that's the thing that gets people fired up and that can become a very dicey politically. So there are things like syringe service programs, for example, is a type of harm reduction. People will sort of like, is our medications for opioid use disorder harm reduction or are they treatment? So I think people will sort of like go back and forth on that, what, what that means a little bit. But the truth is this, this, I think sometimes we think about, and we do this, I think we do this for addiction in ways we don't for other conditions, where it's like, if we don't have if we don't have the absolute sort of perfect solution for something, then it's nothing. Then we can't do anything. Harm reduction is basically a concept of like, well, we want to reduce, like, we know that you're on a recovery journey. We want to reduce the risk that you're going to die. And in that process, there's pretty good evidence that when we do that, you connect people to treatment and you get them out of, of, of the cycle that they're in. So things like syringe service programs, for example, let me, let me talk about that. This is not this has not been a red or blue conversation. We see things like Scott County in Indiana, where we have like when um, Jerome Adams was the, was the our former Surgeon General under the last administration was the State Department of Health Secretary there and the Pence administration. They did a syringe service program in Scott Scott County to uh, when they had an HIV and hepatitis C outbreak. In my home state of West Virginia, there's been a, there's been this real back and forth around syringe service programs around Charleston, where um, they they were there and then they weren't, and we've seen big outbreaks in hepatitis C. I think there are elements of harm reduction for me that five years ago, even syringe service programs for me personally, like if we're just going to be honest, it's like what are we talking about? Like we're going to give people syringes, but as you look at the evidence, if we really let evidence drive you see that it not only reduces risk of HIV and hepatitis C, but it gets people connected to treatment. And so if we're if we're trying to save lives, it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I think back to your point, you can't let perfection get in the way of good, right? I mean, you're, you're making improvements and that's really important. This report contains amazing resources and links at the end that are free, a lot of educational things. And I would encourage people to go and and take a look and really uh, delve down into those. But what are some other things you would like for our listeners to know? And what are some next steps that you're hopeful about? Hmm. So, you know, this was an interesting for, for me. This was the most substantial thing that I've done federally. So it was a really interesting experience. My hope for this, like this report, is that it begins. It's the beginning of a conversation reflecting a little bit on some of even the, the press that uh, that that this report had afterwards, including like there's a report in The New York Times about it, which basically said, I mean, this is a great beginning, but it's not enough. And I 100 percent agree. Right. The goal for this and we should have made it clearer in the uh, in the in the the uh, report itself was that this was a starting point, not an end. The things that this report did were things we can do right now that, uh, and let me just be like getting commitments from agencies is challenging. <laughs> so the, that we can do now, the goal for the next step of this are, okay, what, what can we do in the next budget cycle? And beyond that, what can Congress do? My firm belief in this space is that the only path forward is, you know, this issue has been bipartisan is bipartisan, bipartisan support to make this better. Like we've seen like the Ryan White act where we've seen, Hey, we have this huge problem. You know, at the time it was that HIV 
And we need not just resources, but infrastructure. What we don't need to fix this problem is like another two-year grant that's limited here or honestly another mom model. What we need is sustained infrastructure and investment because you can't – we need long-term training for folks. Like we need to begin training in medical school, residency, build the programs to bring things together. That's not going to happen unless there's sustained investment. So that's what I hope happens. And I hope as we start to see more of a conversation from everything from opioid lawsuits to legislation that – I hope this report elevates at least the issue, so people will think about including pregnant women and infants in uh, in the solutions that they're that they're working for. I hope so too. I would encourage everybody to go and and find this report and, and review it and look at the resources at the end. Um, thank you, Dr. Patrick, for being with us today. It was a very helpful interview. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.